Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is noted attorney and legal commentator, George Conway. Welcome, one and all. Well, we do have the third indictment has come down, and it is about the January 6th events. The former president is going to be arraigned. We're recording this on Thursday. The former president is scheduled to be arraigned this afternoon, and he had the option of doing it remotely, but he wanted the theater of being the martyr. And so he is going to show up in person and it will be the beginning of a really historic and nervous making uh, series of events. But one of the things that was just amazing is that the Secret Service had to do a sweep of the courthouse prior to Trump's arrival. And so you have this bizarre situation that marks where we are as a country, that because he served as president, is entitled to have the Secret Service sweep the courthouse, he is also the defendant, and he is also perhaps a criminal. So there we are. It doesn't get more bizarre than that. But let's dig into the nature of the case. George, I'm so glad to have you with us. One of the things that the Trump lawyers are saying already and the Trump defenders is that this is an illegitimate prosecution because the president was merely exercising his First Amendment rights to express an opinion about the election. How do you respond to that argument? Bill Barr. <laughs> Last night, he was interviewed by Caitlin Collins uh, at, at CNN. And he was asked basically that same question. And he said, basically, that's, he didn't use the word BS, but that was essentially what he said. I mean, every fraud that's prosecutable, whether it be securities fraud, to steal money from the government, fraud to bilk somebody out of a pension, fraud to get an illegal tax refund, that all involves speech. Right. And just because you use words and transmit words to effectuate a fraud doesn't make it protected speech under the first. And, and Barr makes this point. But I don't know, just, I'm just going to lay everything on Bill Barr because he said it so well. Trump had the right, and, and this is set out in the indictment, he had the right to make false claims about the election. He didn't have the right to make false claims about the election as part of a conspiracy to overturn the election through lies and deceit and chicanery. And that is what makes his conduct illegal under the law, um, both as a, a substantive crime matter and as a conspiracy. So that's his problem. It is not protected. You can say the Democrats are weaponizing. You can say all sorts of crazy things, as he is wont to do. But if you use false statements to try to change and affect and alter the course of government and to disrupt the functions of government here, the most important function that our democracy serves, which is the peaceful transfer of power after a free and fair election. If you do that, you use words to do that. Those words are not protected speech. Right. As Nick Cattagio put it, he said, you know, everybody has a right to say, I wish my wife were dead. 
Right. But if you say, I wish my wife were dead while slipping $5,000 to a hitman, <laughs> right? it's the action and the words together. So that was one thing I wanted to, to discuss with you. Another is, what do you make of the role of Mark Meadows here? He's not mentioned, but a number of people have said that they detect or they find some evidence that Meadows must be cooperating. Do you have a view on that? Oh, he's absolutely cooperating. He absolutely has some kind of an understanding with prosecutors, and he absolutely is providing them with information. And there, there is a paragraph there about the Georgia count uh, where it alleges that the chief of staff to the president of the United States, Meadows, visited Georgia to see the county. And he reported back that it basically describes a conversation or communication between Meadows and Trump. And, you know, Meadows reported that the recount was proceeding in an exemplary fashion or some words like that. Mm -hmm. So he is there. He's lurking there. And the fact is, he was the traffic cop right. outside the Oval. And, you know, everything went through him. Or a lot of things went through him. And everybody who was trying to figure out whether they wanted to talk to Trump or to get some information to Trump, they talked to him. And so... He is absolutely the most crucial witness to Trump's state of mind during the entire pre-January 6th and on January 6th. Well, let let me interrupt you right there because I want to get to this question about state of mind because that's the other thing that critics object to. They say, well, you know, you have to prove not just that the election was not stolen, that Trump was mistaken. You have to prove that he knew that he was lying. And the state of mind is going to be incredibly hard to prove. And I am mystified by this argument. It seems to me that they're saying when someone has been told again and again and again by the people they appointed, by the people in a position to know that something is not true and they continue to believe it, basically what they're saying is that he is too delusional to be able to take reality on board, but nevertheless, we should reelect him. Yeah, he has a tenuous grip on reality, to be sure. But he does know the difference between right and wrong. And he does know, to some extent, the difference between truth and, and falsehood. He just doesn't care. That's the nature of his mental disorder. He's a narcissistic sociopath and, and a sociopath or a psychopath you can use the words interchangeably as far as he's concerned he does not care what the truth is to him the words are instrumental they are used to convey something that he wants to convey that he wants people to believe and that serves his purposes it doesn't matter to him whether something is actually true and actually false so if you or i or anybody here says something even unintentionally that was incorrect we feel guilty. It makes us nervous and we want to correct it. We're embarrassed by it. Donald Trump, because he is a sociopath, does not have that compunction. And that's the difference between him and the rest of the world. But the fact is, he does know the difference to a large extent between truth and falsity. I mean, Barr in his interview last night said he, Trump absolutely knew that he lost. And so what Trump does is he just says whatever he needs to say to get to the next moment. And it may be inconsistent with something he's been told 10 minutes before, something that he actually saw. It just doesn't matter to him. There's all this evidence that he was told repeatedly again and again that he lost. There's going to be no question that he knew. And in fact, there are some interesting little tidbits in the indictment 
that show that he knew. There's a paragraph in there where they're describing a conversation that Trump had with Mike Pence. He's trying to persuade Pence to throw out electoral votes. And Pence says, I don't have the ability to do that and so on and so forth. And Trump says, you're too honest. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Right. (laughs) Trump views the truth and honesty as a weakness. He thinks that everyone else, you know, this is, again, what sociopaths and narcissists do. They project their own characteristics onto other people. He assumes that anybody who knows what they're doing, who is out there out to get him, first of all, but they also lie to get him. So he has to lie to counter back. And the fact of the matter is that even if he believes that somehow there was some fraud somewhere, It wouldn't matter because he was told that the specific things that he was pointing to as fraud were not fraud. It was false. He was lying. And that's what he wanted when he made that call to Raffensperger, for example. Even if he thought that in some abstract sense he won, he was trying to get Raffensperger to just fix the vote. You don't have to show that he believed that he lost. You have to show that he believed that the specific things he was saying were not grounded in fact. In other words, um, let me see if I put it another way. It's like OJ, right? OJ, not the murder, but the thing he ultimately went to jail for was he held some people up at gunpoint who had some memorabilia that he believed belonged to him and that had been unlawfully taken from him. And whether or not that's true, didn't get him off and shouldn't get him off and and he ultimately served time for the fact that he tried to take the materials back by force. And and so that is exactly the same thing. Excellent point. I'm going to bring Linda in here. Linda, there are other examples. There's the you're too honest comment to Mike Pence. Interesting that Pence kept contemporaneous notes, by the way. I would add a tape recorder. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there is also the other line that anybody who watched the January 6th hearings is familiar with, which is that he said to Justice Department officials as part of his corrupt effort to get the Justice Department to lie to state officials about sending in their electoral college delegates. He said, just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to congressional Republicans and me. So there's quite a bit there. And plus, you know, this is the indictment. This lays out the big picture. But by no means does this suggest that we know everything that Jack Smith has. That's exactly right. But by the way, he has a lot. And, you know, it is so disingenuous for Republicans to defend this as simply Donald Trump exercising his right of free speech, both as president, as a candidate. There was an even more ridiculous argument I thought made, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal this week, by two veteran Republican lawyers who suggested that all that he was doing was done in his official capacity as president, <laughs> and that there is Department of Justice at least regulations, and guidance, they cited yeah. at least right guidance that you can't be prosecuted for what you're doing officially as president. Well, I mean, that would mean that any president of the United States could officially, as president, commit any crime. And they would not be able to be prosecuted. And but Linda, course, that's what they're hoping for. That's what that is what they're hoping for. But you know, it's it's so frustrating because what was laid out, and it's laid out in exquisite detail in this indictment, is the actual concrete steps 
that Donald Trump initiated. Some of it, yes, on the very bad advice that he got from John Eastman, a lawyer who is, by the way, in the middle of a trial himself and may lose his law license. That has richly deserved. Yes, richly deserved. But it's one thing to go out and tell the public that you've lost the election, but it is another thing to conceive of a plan to create fraudulent ballots for electors to actually commit forgery. I mean, to take official documents and, you know, manipulate them in such a way that you insert new names to gather forces together in state houses or near state houses in seven different states and have these fake electors fill out the forms. And Donald Trump himself was actively involved in this. He was on the telephone urging state legislatures to take up this notion that state legislatures could basically vacate the results of any election. And by the way, that legal theory, giving the decision about all matters related to voting to state legislators and and particularly the selection of electors to state legislators, that theory of state legislatures essentially being able to overturn court decisions and be able to take into themselves legal powers that they don't have, that was tried before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court this summer threw that whole notion out. So, you know, having the supreme authority of the state legislatures, it was badly used. And John Eastman, by the way, they keep referring to him as this eminent constitutional lawyer. Well, I've known John Eastman a very long time, and I've debated him on constitutional law, basically on the subject of natural born citizens. He has filed cases in the Supreme Court a number of times. I don't know a single case that John Eastman has ever won. He certainly hasn't won on the natural born (laughs) citizens. So anybody who, you know, thinks that somehow he's a preeminent legal authority, I think is just wrong. Thank you, Linda. You have the best stories. (laughs) (laughs) So Bill Galston, I'm going to come to you on this advice of counsel argument, because you can make the case that Trump, he didn't take advice of counsel. He rejected advice of counsel. He rejected the opinion of his White House counsel, of the attorney general, of the next attorney general, of the deputy attorney general, all of the lawyers in the Department of Justice who had reason to know about this and had expertise rejected all of their counsel and went shopping for crackpots who would tell him what he wanted to hear. That's going to be the argument? Uh, apparently. <laughs> what do you think of the argument so far? What do you think of the indictment in general? You know, some people are saying, look, this is not a slam dunk. It's not like the uh, Mar-a-Lago case. That one was just about as zipped up as you could possibly imagine. This one, not quite, right? That is my view. And it's my view, not because I'm a lawyer, because I'm not. But the commentaries that I've read in the past day do suggest that Jack Smith, the special counsel, is making arguably appropriate use of existing statutes, but is applying them to cases, the kinds of cases to which they have not previously been applied. I don't but know. Bill, there's never been a situation like this okay. before. Mona, yes, 
But the question on the table, as I understand it, is whether this case is as buttoned down as the Mar-a-Lago case. And what I'm saying is, no, it's not. Not because the facts are going to be in dispute. I actually think that the, you know, the factual record as summarized in the indictment and as it will be laid out in a court of law is going to be very compelling. And I suspect that a substantial portion of it, it will stand up to cross-examination quite successfully. I think the nub of the case is going to be the relationship between the facts and the law. Or to put it slightly differently, I think ultimately the determination of the case, the outcome of the case, will revolve around a judgment, probably eventually by the Supreme Court, as to whether the law has been appropriately applied to this case, whether it covers this case. I think the odds are that at least one of the legal theories at play in these indictments will be sustained. I would not take an even money bet on Donald Trump getting off scot-free after the appellate process has been completed, assuming there is an appellate process, as I think there will be. All I'm saying is that unlike the Mar-a-Lago case where the law could not be clearer and the relationship between the facts and the law could not be clearer, this case presents some legal issues that are yet to be determined with finality. Damon Linker, one of the potential problems, though, with the Trump defense is that if you're going to make an argument that the fraud statute requires showing a corrupt state of mind and that the government, and this is of course true, the government bears the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump had the mens rea, the guilty mind in this case. Yes, they have the burden, but it would seem to me that one of the ways that the defense would have to show that Trump didn't have that state of mind would be to put him on the stand. And they certainly don't want to do that. Yeah, that's certainly true. You know, Bill Galston uh, admitted that he is not a lawyer. And if that is true, I am twice not a lawyer because I really <laughs> feel uh, in the woods and in the weeds when it comes to some of these technical legal questions. I mean, what you just asked, that sounds reasonable to me as a problem, but I don't feel that qualified to weigh in on it. I'm happy to defer to the lawyers and have them hash that out. For me, this case, as well as the other cases that Trump is facing, but this one, I think, in some ways, most keenly raise more political questions. There was a lot of discussion, especially in the latter half of the Trump administration, about the fact that you know he was violating norms a lot, but it didn't appear that he was often violating laws and that that was frustrating to people who wanted to rein him in in his sort of thrashing about the executive branch trying to do things that really no president has ever done and that everyone sort of intuited he shouldn't have the power to do that. But yet when it came to actual the letter of the law, there was not a lot there. And so you had some calls for reform, like we need – 
new laws to stipulate that, yes, all these things that the founding fathers would never have guessed a president would want to do, try to do, fantasize about. We need to actually have rules saying, actually, no, you cannot do that. And I'm struck by, you know, what Bill admitting that there is a question in the charges in this indictment about does the law as written cover this? And if you stand back and you remember back to those insane two months between the 2020 election and the events of January 6th, I mean, I'm sure everyone listening and everyone on the panel can recall the feeling at the time of thinking, this is really bad. This should not be okay. And then when January 6th unfolded, as I sat there slack-jawed staring at the television, I thought, if this isn't illegal, if Trump can get away with having incited this mob to attack the national legislature in order to keep himself in power, and then there's the other things from the January 6th hearing that have been recounted again this week about talk within members of the administration about how if they did succeed in staying in power and then there were riots and protests around the country that they would just declare martial law. I mean, that was Jeffrey Clark. Yeah, exactly. Who's probably one of the unindicted co-conspirators. And I'm sort of left here thinking like, how can there not be a law? that says you're not allowed to do that. And then my final point, which brings in my main consideration, which is politics more than the law of this, the fact that as far as I can tell, I don't know if there are some legal theories out there floating around that would speak against this, but as far as I understand it, Donald Trump could hypothetically be convicted in New York City And then also indicted in Florida for the documents case and convicted in this gravest case of essentially trying to overthrow American democracy and appoint himself dictator. And he can still run for office through this whole process and win and instead of being sent to jail, go to the White House and become president again. And, you know, a lot of people in the world look at this and they're thinking, how could that possibly happen? But as far as I know, I don't believe there is any legal means to avoid that outcome. I don't know what to say other than I have to assume that the constitutional framers and all the rest of us ever since had never thought, you know, we really should pass a law saying that if you're under federal indictment for trying to turn yourself into a tyrant, you can't run and win the presidency again. And the, the fact that we seem to be in a situation where that could happen. I mean, the other big news this week that has been completely eclipsed by the indictments is that early in the week, there was a new New York Times Siena College poll showing that effectively the race for the White House, if we assume it's Trump, who's winning by a by a mile in the primaries, Trump v. Biden is tied at the moment. And that as the backdrop to all of this is alarming to a degree that I won't even try to match up with word choice. It's simply uh, astonishing. It is. And we can also, you know, just spare a moment of disdain and disgust for the Republicans in the Senate who failed to convict him in the second impeachment, because had they taken that act, absolutely, if had they done that, they could have prevented him from ever holding a position of power or responsibility in the United States ever again. They didn't 
do it. And so we are where we are. Uh, very briefly, could I just uh, yeah, make a special note about Mitch McConnell? I'm not the kind of guy who who like bashes McConnell all the time, but I will say I suspect that in the light of history, especially if things go badly in the way that I was just sketching out over the next 18 months, the man who will be judged especially harshly is Mitch McConnell for failing to rally his troops on February 13th, 2021 for a conviction in that second impeachment. If that had happened with an added line in the conviction that he will never be permitted to hold public office again, then all of this is over. He's under indictment for these crimes and there are no political implications of it, or at least very, very trivial ones. That is 100% True. George, coming back to you. So we are in bizarro land with Trump being the far and away leader for the Republican nomination for president and being indicted multiple times. But the use of Section 241, which was not recommended by the January 6th committee, which was not on anybody's card, you know, there are all these model prosecutions that have been floating out there. Nobody had that one. And it seems so obvious now in retrospect, you know, in the 2020 hindsight that, look, yeah, there is a law that covers when you try to subvert an election. There's a law that says you cannot do something that will deny to citizens that their votes be fairly counted. And the courts have interpreted that section as things like stuffing ballot boxes or not fairly counting votes. So it doesn't seem a stretch. That seems to fit, at least to me. What do you think? Yeah, it does fit. I mean, the real issue, the real reason why people say, oh, my God, where did 241 come from? Is There are many, many statutes in the United States Code that deal with people doing things that involve fraud or submitting false statements to the government to affect government action and to take away people's rights. And you could charge this under any number of statutes. There are some that are better than others. Um, 241 is very good. I think the first charge, 371, which is conspiracy to defraud the United States, is actually is perfect. And obstruction, the second two charges, two and three, involve section 1512 of the criminal code, which is a conspiracy and the substantive attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, namely the electoral vote count. All of it fits like a glove. It just we put the glove on in different ways. And and for the for the principal charge, 371, I mean it, if you submitted false documentation, say a, a false tax return in order to get a, a undeserved refund, you could be charged under 371. And the seminal case under that statute was a World War I case where a bunch of people were protesting, essentially protesting the selective service and the draft, and they were pacifists, they were against the war. They handed out leaflets that misled people about their obligation to register for the draft. Their efforts to do that were held to violate Section 371. They were interfering with the processes of governments through the issuance of false statements. And that's what Trump did. Trump was doing that in a in, in, in hundred different ways. In a hundred different ways he did that. There was also a more recent case, George, where there was a fellow who was trying to persuade in 2016, trying to tell Democratic voters that they could vote for Hillary Clinton online or with yeah, a hashtag yes. or whatever. In Brooklyn or something. Yeah, yeah I think in Brooklyn. So he yeah. also was found guilty. There are so many tools in the prosecutor's toolbox to handle 
fraud. I think a lot of people, including myself, early on got sort of distracted by the violence and started thinking of the case in terms of incitement of an insurrection. Mm -hmm. And that is hard to prove. You've got First Amendment issues, you've got mm -hmm. causation issues, but that was almost an after effect of the fundamental crimes that he committed, which was an attempt to manipulate the electoral process in a way was not permitted by law, including by pressuring the vice president of the United States. All of that was an attempt to defraud the United States. If you stole money from the Treasury, even $100,000 or $10,000, you'd go to jail. Here, Trump was trying to steal through deceit, chicanery, whatever you want to call it, whatever the words are in the statute, he was trying to steal the entire government of the United States. Yep. So if $10,000 would get you in jail in the pokey, stealing the government, the entire government should. This isn't really that hard. Right. So, George, do you still call yourself a Republican? No. Okay. Yeah, I was registered in New Jersey. I was an unaffiliated voter in March of 2018, right around the time, in fact, Mona, that I was inspired by your standing up to those folks at CPAC. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> that was one of the key moments and sort of like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't play. Well, that makes me extremely gratified, I have to say. So, you're talking about Trump's attempt to manipulate the whole legal system, and but what he has very successfully manipulated to a point of incomprehensibility is the Republican Party, which is almost in lockstep with him. Now, admittedly, there are 25%, according to the latest New York Times poll that Damon mentioned, who are hostile to him. And there's even a subset of people, about 7% total, who would vote for Biden over Trump in 2024. But Here's the typical thing you hear. This is Vivek Ramaswamy. Quote, Donald Trump isn't the cause of what happened on January 6th. The real cause was systematic and pervasive censorship of citizens in the year leading up to it. If you tell people they can't speak, that's when they scream. Or you have Sean Davis of The Federalist saying that the Department of Justice is a domestic terror organization. So it is hard to overstate how corrupt the Republican Party is and the opinion shaping wing of the right has become. I mean, even this week, you had these editorials from the National Review and the Wall Street Journal. First of all, they were factually wrong about the law, but also they, you know, are wringing their hands about this is something that shouldn't be decided by the courts. Just your reflections on where the party is and how that will play into the next 18 months. I just think the party is gone. Mm -hmm. I, I think the party needs to basically be destroyed, frankly. I mean, it's destroying itself. And I don't think there's any way that it can be repaired. And I think Trump is going to take them down. Mm -hmm. The only way this turns out usually badly for the republic is if these no-labels people or some third-party candidate somehow manages to, to prop Trump up. But it's like crack. I mean, they've addicted themselves to these lies. They live off of these lies. The conservative media uh, profits off of these lies. The political consultants profit off of these lies. The congressmen basically make a living selling lies to the, the American people for contributions and funding their, you know, lining their pockets or, or providing for their necessities of life through their PACs and whatever. There's no way out because they basically locked in a certain number of people to these lies. Ultimately, you're going to end up with a core of the party that kind of eats itself up. And the rest of the party is, is just going to fall off and become independent uh, to the extent it hasn't already. 
Okay, last legal question, and it's this. In light of everything, do you think that this case, the January 6th case, do you think there's any chance it could start before November 2020? Yes, you do. I absolutely do. And I think that's absolutely the reason why you see a large blank space underneath the name Donald Trump in the caption of the indictment. Jack Smith chose to bring a case directly and solely against Trump to simplify it. The more defendants you have in any legal proceeding, whether it be civil or criminal, the more complicated it becomes. And the more lawyers, the more motions, and the more that the jury has to keep track of. Right. He charged Trump and Trump alone to bring this case to trial as soon as possible, and he has the right judge for it. Yes. So where Trump lucked out on getting Eileen Cannon, perhaps in Florida, but in D.C., he got Tanya Chutkin, who is nobody's idea of a softie. So... (laughs) George had to jump off. We're so glad that he was able to join us for the first segment. All right. I think we were all very interested in the movie Oppenheimer. We've all seen it by now. So I thought it'd be interesting to just have a discussion about the film because it was very well done, in my opinion. And I happen to have also read the book on which it was mostly based quite recently. And also because it prompted a discussion online that I feel we are well equipped to address. And that is the morality of developing and actually using the atomic bomb. So I'm going to start with Damon. Damon, did you like the movie or not? And tell me your overall thoughts about about the film first before we get into Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, I thought it was good, solidly good, thought-provoking and interesting. I'm not a huge fan of Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker. I think he's a little bombastic and kind of overuses music. He's hyperactive in editing, which is, you know, I have to give him some credit for it because that tendency he has to kind of have, you know, three edits per every 10 seconds ended up making a movie that's basically three hours of a bunch of smart people talking to each other, feel like you were watching, you know, a major suspense thriller. (laughs) And part of that is because this pace that he sets up with the very loud music and lots of quick cuts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, the movie ends in three hours. You feel like it's been like an hour and 45 minutes. So that's pretty remarkable and and a testament to very high skilled filmmaking. But I also appreciated the fact that the movie didn't do what I would always fear a Hollywood presentation of this chapter in our history uh, might do, which is to engage in, I think, an overabundance of kind of moral second guessing, which is Mm -hmm. like, how could we possibly have done this horrible thing? Are we really any better than our enemies in World War II? That's sort of what I always fear from a kind of pop culture treatment of this uh, episode. And the movie, for the most part, did not do that. Oppenheimer himself had very grave moral misgivings about the way the use of the bomb developed after the war and the movie does explore that, but it doesn't really take a strong stand with his struggles with that. You don't get the sense that Nolan is trying to vindicate them. It's more of a piece of this man and his psyche, which we see as somewhat troubled from the very beginning of the film. 
I appreciated that. So in this case, Nolan was not being bombastic then. Not thematically. I think as a style of filmmaking, he's still pretty bombastic. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of very loud things. And again, music used a lot. Like 90% of the movie is very loud music going on. But no, when it comes to kind of theme and moral message, it was not a bombastic film. And I appreciated that. That was uh, surprising to me and I liked it. So, Bill, I'd love to hear your views. I think it's just refreshing to see a movie about a historical topic that doesn't make a mash of history, you know, that basically pretty well hews to what we know with a few minor little things. I agree with you about that. And the film was a rare product of modern culture, a serious film about a serious topic. Having said that, I'll confess that I was disappointed. First of all, stylistically, I was, I think, more repelled by the level of bombast of presentation than Damon was, or should I say even more repelled. But also, it was not entirely clear to me what the fundamental story of the film was about. And there are a number of different cuts that the director could have taken at the overall story. It's not clear to me which one he chose. And so I found the combination of structural indecision plus tactical tactical editing to be quite confusing, frankly. But my fundamental, my fundamental critique of the movie is this, and this is a critique that can be extended to many different parts of public culture that are trying to look seriously at serious public topics. And that is the perspective of the decision makers is never taken seriously. What I objected to most about the film was the caricature of Harry Truman, which I thought was deeply unfair. And not only that, diversionary, because you never really get a clear sense of what the options were that the president of the United States faced at that point. And one of them was a land invasion of the home islands that according to the best military estimates would have cost many more lives on each side than were lost in Hiroshima. So if you're doing a straight utilitarian cost benefit analysis, with the metric of lives, then you would have to say there it was arguably justified. Yes, but we dropped the bomb on civilians. Absolutely correct. And we firebombed Dresden with greater loss of life than in Hiroshima. And and so the, the entire question of what the options were cannot be settled by an appeal to our humanity. Because war is inherently inhumane. The laws of war try to make it slightly less so, but there are limits consistent with the nature of war and the purposes of war. And the film, in my judgment, did nothing whatsoever to illuminate the public dimension of the issue. It was about one man's scientific ambition and grandiosity at war against some portion of his conscience. And that is not a trivial subject, but to be blunt, it does not go to the heart of the matter. 
Linda, so first I'd love to hear your just overall reflections on the film. Yes, and then, and I, wa- I want okay. to beg to differ. Okay, I want go, to okay. Beg go to for differ. it. Go for it. And maybe this comes from my background and training in literature as opposed to politics or philosophy or even public policy, although I've spent a good part of my life in the latter. This was not a movie about the decision to bomb or not bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was not a movie about the moral questions involved in the creation of atomic weapons. This was a movie about one man's genius and about another man's jealousy and paranoia and attempt to break down that genius. So I think you have to look at it in those terms. You know, I wasn't, as I was watching it, even thinking about the moral questions involved in the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I mean, I think there was a very purposeful decision not to show that in the movie, because then you would have pulled away from the main creative forces that were driving this movie, this examination of character, this examination of one man's quest. And as I say, the other man being Louis Strauss. Played Strauss, he pronounced Strauss, it Strauss. Strauss, yeah. that's right, Strauss. Yes, in fact, there was even a discussion in the movie. Yeah. Louis Strauss, who was, I think, brilliantly played by Robert Downey Jr. Um, 100% agree. Yeah. yeah. And while I absolutely agree with Bill that it was a very unfair caricature of Harry Truman, again, the performance by Gary Oldman, small as it was, was brilliant. So, you know, I was watching the movie as an aesthetic creation. And on that basis, yeah, you know, I watched it in IMAX, so boy, was it loud. And boy, (laughs) were the explosions bright. But I thought it was brilliantly done. And the creative use of going back and forth, it's very difficult to do that in such a complicated story. One of the ways that they made sure you understood where you were was by the use of black and white as opposed to technicolor. And again, the, the watching the performances, there was not a single weak performance, I don't believe, in the movie. Two of my favorite things to look at in the world are the topography and beautiful skies of New Mexico, which was prominently featured. And another thing I really like looking at is uh, Killian Murphy. <laughs> he is, you know, so handsome, but but also so intense and mm-hmm. the intelligence in his eyes. You know, he has what I always refer to as smart eyes that you can sort mm-hmm. of look at somebody and say, oh, this guy's got, you know, there's something behind those. Uh, something going something on going there. Something going on yeah. in there. Yeah. So, you know, I think thoroughly enjoyed this movie. And like Damon, I thought the three hours, yeah, maybe they could have cut 15 minutes of it or so. You know, you some of us need bio breaks <laughs> in less than three hours. So that would have been nice. But I just thought it was a brilliant piece of filmmaking and everything that went into it, I thought was done extremely well. 
So that's really interesting. I was wondering how it would look to somebody who had not recently read the book, because it, you know, it seemed like it might be actually a little bit hard to follow. And I didn't find it so because I had just read the book, but I wanted I haven't. I, about I haven't read the book, but yeah, but, I know. Yeah. So that's so that's good. And the other thing I would say, just uh, FYI, Linda, is that our culture critic Sunny Bunch agrees with you and said that the film reminded him more than any other of Amadeus, yes, which is the same similar. theme, right? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, the man of genius and the other less talented person who is, you know, out of envy and whatever, possibly spite or wounded pride decides to try to destroy him. And so, yeah, it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting theme. But the reason I wanted to dwell on this for a minute is that the movie itself inevitably provoked a conversation on Twitter and elsewhere. And, you know, you see a lot of young people on the left who are ready to jump right in and say that, you know, we have no moral standing as a country because of what we did in World War II, because we chose to drop those bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I knew that this crowd would not let that pass. And the fact is, it was a very, very difficult decision. And anybody who took the decision lightly would not be worthy of respect. But the fact is that it was a tough one. And, you know, people say, why didn't they just do a demonstration bombing of an uninhabited island in the Pacific? You know, the answer came back, well, but suppose that didn't work because they didn't know that these bombs were all going to go off. And so here, I'll just read you one thing. This is from Paul Fussell, who was a critic. And this was from uh, several decades ago when this debate was going on in in, uh, the pages, I believe, of the New York Review of Books and elsewhere. And he was one of the soldiers who would have been sent to participate in the invasion if it had not been for the bombs. And so he said, thank God for the bombing. That was his view. And he wrote, quote, during the time between the dropping of the Nagasaki bomb, which was the second one, on August 9th, and the actual surrender on the 15th. The war pursued its accustomed course. On the 12th of August, eight captured American flyers were executed, heads chopped off. The 51st United States submarine Bonefish was sunk, all aboard drowned. The destroyer Callahan went down, the 70th to be sunk, and the destroyer escort Underhill was also lost. And as other critics have pointed out, If the United States, having this weapon, had chosen to invade the islands and lost hundreds of thousands of American men, and then it had come out later that we had a super weapon that could have avoided all that, how would the American public have viewed Truman? And how would any of us? So this is not to say these are easy or simple decisions, but just to say that the people online who were ready to condemn the United States as a monster equivalent to our enemies were not getting the full picture. So anybody have any closing thoughts on that before we turn to our highlight or low light of the week? I am absolutely convinced there is no president you could imagine in that situation who would not have done exactly what Truman did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this goes to Bill's point earlier, which I think was very, very good about the necessities and the lonely responsibilities of statesmanship and that Truman exercised them, I think, as well as you could imagine anyone doing in that situation. And, and as I said, no other president you could imagine would have chosen any other course because it is what needed to be done as 
mournful as we may be about the consequences in all kinds of dimensions. Right. And we should be. I mean, it's war is the worst thing that human beings do. So just to test the premise of your answer, do you think Jimmy Carter would have dropped the bomb? Oh, in that exact situation, I suppose I have to say that I do think he would have. Uh, yeah. But I made you hesitate, didn't I? <laughs> well, yeah, because he was such a very moral Christian personality. Uh, it does make one pause and think, would he have been too troubled in his conscience to actually do it? But then again, uh, I, I do think that uh, sitting behind that desk, in that room, looking at all the intelligence and the facts and figures of our soldiers and their fates and so forth would have led him to the same position. Yeah, I do. Interesting. What do you think, Bill? I think he would have hesitated a lot longer than Truman did. August 7th, then. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the Japanese war cabinet even to the very end, remained deadlocked on this. And it was only the intervention of the emperor that got Japan to finally surrender. And half right. of the Japanese cabinet committed seppuku rather than live with it. Right. Uh, yeah. So. I mean, we, we basically did this to convince one man. Yep. That's right. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Interesting discussion. All right. Let's turn to our highlight or low light of the week, Bill Galston. My highlight is a little bit off the beaten path, but it's potentially very important. There have been persistent rumors in the press and elsewhere to the effect that a grand bargain involving the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel is very much under discussion. I've been monitoring the Saudi press just to see any, whether there was anything to it. And the answer to me appears to be yes. You had a very prominent editor of a leading newspaper who did everything he could to lend credibility to the story. And that's a newspaper with close links to the government of Saudi Arabia. And it would simultaneously be the culmination of Benjamin Netanyahu's dream you know, for the resolution of the fundamental security problems of, of Israel and the end of some of the right-wing extremists dream of annexation of the entire land of Israel west of the Jordan River. It would also mean a fundamental transformation of the security relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, and a clear association of the Biden administration with the Sunni alliance against Iran. If this were to come to pass, in the life of this administration, certainly in the next 18 months or so, it would be a diplomatic achievement that I think might, in the light of history, be seen as surpassing even Camp David. 100%. Let's stay tuned to that. Linda Chavez. That's good news. All right. Well, my highlight of the week turns to my favorite topic, immigration. And it is a piece that appeared in the Unpopulous Substack newsletter this week. It's called A Landmark Study Debunks Populist Anti-Immigrant Narratives. It's by Michael Clemens. It's really about a book that came out last year, a book called Paved with Gold, uh, Streets of Gold, sorry. And what it does is go through 
this massive study that was done by Ron Abramitsky and Leah Bustan. And they did basically a study that looked at three different cohorts of immigrants from the middle of the 19th century, the early 20th century, and current immigrants, and looked at questions about whether or not there was economic mobility and whether, for example, as we often hear, and particularly in restrictionist circles, that, oh, the immigrants of you know the 19th century were great and they moved up, but today's immigrants aren't doing so. Well, this study debunks that notion. It also debunks the notion that European immigrants in the past assimilated more quickly than today's immigrants from Asia and Latin America do. And it debunks the notion that immigrant workers are a direct threat to current workers. The notion was that in the old days, there were so many jobs available to low-skilled people that there was plenty of jobs to go around and there wasn't direct competition with American-born workers. So if you don't have time to read the book Streets of Gold, I do suggest you're reading this article because it goes into many of the arguments and much of the case. And again, it was by Michael Clemens. Thank you, Damon. Well, I'm going to point to a David Brooks column that ran this week in the New York Times. I have some disagreements with this piece, but I think that it's on the whole uh, a very useful one that really uh, has been kind of burning up social media a bit since it came out with people arguing about various sides of it. It's the latest chapter in the question of What's with these Trump voters? Why is he continuing to be popular despite everything? Title of the piece is, What if we're the bad guys here? Brooks very much sort of takes the Trump voter perspective and tries to kind of make the most sensible, reasonable, David Brooksian kind of take on it. And I think he does a very good job of that. I would have probably chosen to frame it in terms of exactly the way I just described it. Like, well, this isn't really actually the way they think or talk about it. But if we think about the larger kind of sociological trends that are producing their feelings, this is the more rationalized version of why they're doing what they're doing in supporting Trump, rather than sort of imputing to them that rationalized outlook, because I don't think that's accurate. But it is very thoughtful and makes a powerful case that really a lot of what we're seeing in a nutshell is a kind of reaction against a sort of calcified meritocratic elite that has been in charge and perpetuating itself for the last several decades and a lot of popular unhappiness with the results, both in how well those elites perform, their kind of social function, and then also the way they end up structurally perpetuating themselves and keeping out other classes from joining them. Again, all familiar themes, but uh, synthesized in a very artful way. So it's definitely worth thinking with and against and pondering. Uh, and I think our listeners at the podcast will appreciate it. Okay, thank you. I want to cite two pieces that I think are very well worth your time. One is by Pamela Paul, who is a columnist at the New York Times, who is one of my favorites. I recommend all of her work, but uh, in particular, this piece, Don't Call Her Karen, 
where she explains an episode that happened where to uh, Sarah Comrie, who is a physician's assistant, one of the people who put her life on the line to help during the COVID emergency, and who had an episode, an encounter with a gang of young black guys who maybe they were bullying her, maybe she was being, as they put it, a Karen. Well, you know, people have different views of that encounter, but Pamela Paul shows convincingly to me that Comrie had the better of the argument. Her case holds up a lot better than the boys. And yet, because she is a white female who was in an encounter with a bunch of black kids, there are a lot of people who were ready to jump on her and call her names. And she's been doxxed and she has been hounded. Her life has been turned upside down. And it was all over renting a bike. You know, it's just another sad example of our culture where we, you know, are very quick to form mobs and to try to destroy people. And this in particular was a terrible miscarriage. And I applaud Pamela Paul for calling it out. The other piece is by Ilya Soman, and it appeared in Reason magazine. And it was a response to the really unbecoming editorial and interview that Justice Alito gave to the Wall Street Journal. Justice Alito is showing the opposite of judicial temperament these days. He's becoming like a right-wing troll. And he recently said that uh, the Congress has no power to impose ethics rules on the Supreme Court, which is preposterous. And uh, Ilya Soman demonstrates why that is wrong. He says there are limits to what Congress can do, but obviously Congress in the Constitution has the power to regulate the Supreme Court, to determine its jurisdiction, to determine how many members it has. The Congress could eliminate Sam Alito's seat if they so chose. So anyway, it was a good riposte, or is it riposte? I never know how to pronounce that word. I've only seen it written, not heard it pronounced. But anyway, to Justice Alito, again, in Reason Magazine and uh, written from the point of view of somebody who is, you know, in in general, cordial to uh, Alito's views. But but Alito really climbed out onto a limb on this one. And with that, I want to thank our guest, George Conway, and our regulars. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer is Jonathan Siri, And of course, I want to thank all of our fantastic listeners. And we will return next week as every week. 